0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States China Relations, www.ncuscr.org.
1: The National Committee is particularly pleased, I'm particularly pleased, to be uh, able to provide all of you the opportunity to get to know Carlin, to hear about her work, and to meet her. Uh, Because in a sense, we were, well actually not in a sense, literally, we were sort of present at the creation, or present when Carla first became involved with China. Um, In the early 1990s, the National Committee ran a series of exchanges uh, that focused on, it was actually the first in a series of exchanges that focused on civil society in both China and the United States. This series, these exchanges were funded by the Ford Foundation, specifically by Peter Geithner, who then ran the Ford Foundation's China programs. And he suggested that in programming this group in 1995, um, that we might want to take them to meet with Carla and her husband, Lee Irish, so that the two of them could talk to the group about their Center, International Center for -for Not-for-Profit Law. And actually, I vividly remember that meeting. Um, it's in a building over uh, on 6th Avenue. Correct. And, and yeah, absolutely. In, in a room somewhat like this with wonderful views of, of um, New York. And, and when we first walked in, I was afraid we would lose the crowd to looking out the window. But instead, they focused on Carla and Lee. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have worried. I didn't know you then, so I didn't know you would be far better than the scenery. Um, in her uh, introduction to the book, Carla uh, very graciously and warmly and very uh, appropriately thanks uh, Peter Geithner uh, for being one of her mentors on China. The other mentor on China uh, was Jerry Cohn. And so, Carla, you certainly do well in choosing your mentors. (laughs) Because certainly um, no one has done more to help develop No Westerner has done more to help develop the civil society in China than Peter Geithner, and surely no Westerner has done more for um, the field of legal uh, studies and rule of law in China than Jerry Cohen. And so their mentee, Carla Simon, has taken those two strands from each of her mentors and put them together into her work and into this important new book. Uh, civil society in China, a legal framework, the legal framework from ancient times to the new reform era. So she's going to speak about that tonight and
2: I ask you all to join me in welcoming her. Well, thank you very much, Jan, and I'm quite sorry that I did not know that. that, well, I didn't remember because I was very fixated on the Chinese I did not remember that the national committee had been the one that had put together that exchange. I knew that Peter had paid for it. Right, and actually,
1: when you do the second, I will. I will. I mean, I (laughs) made that note because I'm
2: just like, yes, I have to thank you, but I, but I didn't know that, or I didn't remember that, and so I didn't do that, and I apologize because I should have known better. Um, One of the things is I haven't been able to get up to talk to Peter, and I do plan to do that. Um, so I, so that's one of the reasons why I didn't know it, but I will I will definitely do the second edition. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that just about everybody here knows, so I'm gonna start with the cover of the book and then I'm going to explain the bookends of the book, the uh, ancient times and the new reform era and why I got involved in them. And I must say it's high praise coming from you as a as a China scholar, that that you say that I uh, do understand it because that's very important to me to hear. Um, most of you probably know what this character is. It's the character Hui. Uh, for those of you who don't, um, it's it's a wonderful character because it means association or meeting. And just so you know, when when you when you have a good publisher like I have, not every author gets this privilege, um, they give you a place to go to look at images for your cover and you can go through a whole bunch of images. Well I went through four to five hundred images before I actually found this one and when I found it Lee, who was sitting right next to me, could hear me. I'm just going, Eureka! Eureka! I found it! This is the image! And so I sent it off to Oxford and they They said, okay, well, we'll license it for you. They liked it too, it's perfect. Uh, But the other thing that's perfect about it you should know is that when we were in Oxford last September, we were visiting Blackwell's, which if you don't know Blackwell's, it's a wonderful bookstore. And we walked into Blackwell's and there there was a great big table of all these China books and guess what color they were? They were all red. And so it, not only is this a perfect cover, it's the perfect color for a cover because it will stand out. So Jan has very kindly given you some background about how I got involved in this. And yes, indeed, I get, did get involved as a comparativist and very much um, thanks to my husband, Lee Irish. Um, the Ford Foundation knew about our work in Central and Eastern Europe And then when it came time to um, involve us in this, with this delegation from China, um, they did get us uh, involved in that. And it was truly a wonderful experience. And I don't know whether you know this part of it, Jan, but Chen Jin Luo, who's the head of the delegation, decided that he wanted to go up to Columbia University to to see the Lowe Library, where, where the, and so we took him up there and to see where the revolution in 1968 had taken place <laughs> in the United States, and I always tell that story, and I say, well, if jing Chun- Law had known that it was students for a democratic society that were that were demonstrating, he probably would not have been so happy about about seeing it. but in any event, um, he he then invited us in turn to visit in China and to visit with the Ministry of Civil Affairs, which is essentially what got this whole process started. Um, And we've been involved there since 1995, um, frequently with the government giving um, technical assistance, talking with the government about a whole variety of different kinds of issues, such as should the People's Bank of China be involved in regulating foundations? Um, How should, that more recently, how should the government outsource social services to civil society? What are examples of what it's done in other places? Um, what, what countries have done in other places? So um, we've been very involved in practical experience um, with with the this development since 1995. But it's been more than practical experience. I mean, I developed a very strong interest in finding out about um, just really what was, what was the basis for all of this. Um, and so the book does in fact uh, focus both on ancient times, um, going back into um, really the, the whole uh, dynastic era in China, looking at strands of civil society that one could find in general uh, histories of China um, I focused, and for those of you who get the book and read it, you will find this out, I I used a series of histories that were published by Harvard University Press, um, which focus on the different dynastic periods. These are by younger scholars. They're not by any means all of them young. um, But they're by younger scholars than some of the the people who are no longer with us or or who are very old. and that, they're really wonderful, and of course, I have these books that sit on my desk, and they're all marked up and have you know le- yellow mark-throughs and stuff like that, and, and I learned a lot about Chinese history that way, so I did go into ancient times. And then the new reform era of the title means what's going on right now, and I'll come back to that because what's going on right now is really crucial to understanding why I think it's appropriate to use the term civil society in China um, because the Chinese government is really letting go of the old system in which it had heavily controlled the um, social organizations and foundations and other types of nonprofit organizations. The reason I wanted to go back into the ancient times was because I was virtually certain that there were lots of misconceptions about what had gone on in China um, with respect to the associational and charity life. And this is definitely disclosed if one really studies Chinese history. Um, because there, you know, a lot of what we learned in the West, we learned through Christian mission- missionaries. And Christian missionaries were notoriously biased because Chinese were supposedly pagans and they couldn't evolve a system of associational life and charity because guess what? They were pagans and they didn't have the historical underpinnings that Westerners have with respect to Christianity and Judaism and, and those kinds of traditions. So that was a misconception There are more recent misconceptions, and I discovered them. Um, Deng Pufeng, the son of Deng Xiaoping, was quoted uh, after 1989, the Tiananmen Tiananmen, um, events, as saying, well, you know, there's never been humanism in China. Um, I just, I knew that wasn't true, because I lived and taught in China. I taught law students in China, and I met my, law students and they were very interested in volunteering for organizations, doing good works, um, and of course I had studied the legal framework for um, civil society organizations in China um, for many years and I knew that it absolutely couldn't be true, that there was no such thing as civil society. so. That's what I, did, what I decided to set out to do, is to link what were the, what were the sort of parameters, what, what you could do. Now, obviously, as you, start the, as you start the dynastic period, there's a lot more control. I mean, nobody, the emperors didn't like associations. They didn't like cross-regional groupings. But as you proceed through the dynasties, you see more and more and more of those developments. And particularly when you get into the Qing, into the Ming and Qing, you see much more associational life and charity. Um, There's actually a truly wonderful book that I was um, delighted to find by a Harvard historian named um, Joanna Handlin Smith. It's called The Art of Doing Good. And it's about Ming charity, and it was extremely influential for me to read her book. She's she's done all of the uh, primary research, and she documents, you know, what different members of the of the um, aristocracy in China were doing with respect to charity, what the gentry officials were doing with respect to charity, um, and then of course during the during the Qing dynasty, um, there was a great deal of associational life because the um, government really essentially collapsed um, and could not, in fact, address the needs of the people. And so it essentially pushed out into the hands of, of the gentry, uh, of the, um, of the um, various trade associations, pushed out to them and said, you know, look, we need you to do things. We need you to provide grain for the people. We need you to build roads. We need you to do these things, all of which are elements. If you if you are a scholar of this uh, um, these materials in the West, you know these are elements of our civil society. And one of the things that's interesting as, you know, being a comparativist, is to see how these things developed uh, you know, fire brigades in China at the same time that Benjamin Franklin developed his fire brigade in Philadelphia. I, yeah, so there are complete parallels in China. And why anybody thought it was any different, I have absolutely no idea. Um, so then bringing it full circle to the new reform era, um, why do I call it that? It's not Deng Xiaoping's reform era. Something that's happening uh, within the past five years, but really much more now, the government the Ministry of Civil Affairs decided to concentrate on the notion that it could experiment with what is now being called direct registration. Well why is that important because up until relatively recently, um, and that when I say relatively recently, relatively recently on a uh, on a local basis, because as of now the new regulations have not been published. Um, you needed to have a what? You needed to have a sponsor. Okay, so what is known as the system of of um, of dual management you needed to go to a either a gongo a government organized ngo like the women's federation or a, or a ministry and like the health ministry and you needed to receive permission okay permission in order to then go to the ministry of civil affairs and register your ngo well clearly that stifled the development of civil society. And that was, that was the rule in 1950, when um, Mao first uh, developed the first rules coming out of the nationalist period. And basically everything that had been um, free and, and, and accessible to the people under n- the nationalists was co-opted by Mao and the communists into joining the United Front, and then of course everything became part of the government. Subsequently, in 1989 and then in 1998, things became a little bit looser, but it was still extremely tight. However, (coughs) beginning in the mid-2000s, it was decided that, well really we need to experiment. And that is, for those of you who may not know this, that is a traditional way to make law in China. You experiment at the local level, and there have been experiments with all sorts of things, with charity fundraising, um, with respect to this direct registration, with outsourcing, all sorts of different things, outsourcing social services. And so that began, and that has continued through the current period. The current period, the new reform era, I I basically date from the beginning of the experiments in such liberal jurisdictions as Shenzhen and Pudong in Shanghai and places like that. That has continued up until now. But the crucial developments that have occurred since um, 2011 have been these. In 2011, the 12th Five-Year Plan In that document, there is the first actual mention, first actual mention of civil society or social organizations in a chapter, a chapter, actual chapter in the 12th Five-Year Plan. 11th Five-Year Plan, no mention of them at all. Then, over the course of the year, 2011 into 2012, there were developments at the local level, particularly in Guangdong, and the Minister of Social Affairs eventually says, Well, we think that the Guang- Guangdong model ought to apply throughout China. Finally, in 2012, excuse me, in 2013, so this is that was 2011 through 2012, in 2013, at the National People's Congress, it is announced that, in fact, we are going to take these direct registration regulations nationally, take take them nationally. And so we're going to develop a plan for that, and then um, at the end of March, the State Council puts out a plan that says, okay, we're going to finish this job by the end of 2013. Now, will they finish it by the end of 2013? Um, There have been a lot of promises that they were going to finish the new regulations and get them done. And promulgate them, um, that has not occurred. On the other hand, there never has been this much support (coughs) for the notion that they would do it. In other words, there never was a State Council plan announced by the State Council itself saying that this was going to happen.
1: Can you be a little more specific, what is that plan? Okay,
2: okay, okay. Okay, what it means is that organizations will be able, not not all organizations, but the four different types of NGOs will be able, and I'm going to just use the term NGOs because everybody's familiar with that, will be able to register directly with the Ministry of Civil Affairs. Now, trade associations, that's perfectly obvious because Trade associations have been relatively free for a long time. Chambers of commerce, the same thing. And those are business related, so there's a very strong interest in the the context of economic restructuring. There's a very strong interest in doing that for those types of NGOs. But then there are two other types that will be able to directly register. A vast amorphous group of organizations that provide social services. Now, precisely what that means is totally unclear. Um, And it seems to me, as a lawyer, relatively obvious that in order to clarify that, there will need to be regulations that are much more specific. You, You can't just sort of say, well, social service providing organizations, you have to specify what they are. And in Guangdong, for example, they have been much more specific about that. And so presumably the national regulation will be more specific about that. So it should be, it should be the ones that provide um, social services at, at the local level in the urban areas, social services at the local level in the, uh, at the, in the rural areas um, that actually do things like training NGOs because that's been a big focus of social service provision. So not only to the society but also to the NGOs themselves um, and a variety of organizations like that. And, and, and when one thinks about it, one needs to place it in the context of why this is happening. First of all, the, this is part of an economic restructuring for China. Now you may think, an economic restructuring for China, what does that mean? How can NGOs play a role in that? Well, think about this. The NGOs are, in fact, going to receive the outsourcing of many social services. They already have started. I mean, they're they're basically becoming service providers. And the government is being urged, as part of the, this notion of small government, big society, to push these services out into the grassroots, if you will, into the hands of NGOs. On the theory that, well, two theories, that the NGOs are closer to the people, which I think is is clear. They're not government bureaucrats. But secondly, that NGOs, unlike the government, will be able to attract funds from society, from wealthy people, from the current foundations, which are so incredibly important in terms of pooling capital for social interests in China. And there are lots of them, just so you know, there are um, at at least 2,000 of them uh, since the 2004 foundation regulations were passed. And that's a significant number. Um, Then secondly, in 2011, for those of you who know something about what happened in China that year or might have been following the earthquake Relief issues this year. You know that there were scandals in 2011. You may have heard the name Guo Meimei. Um, Guo Meimei's name—it's—it's mean, it's kind of funny because because Guo Meimei's name is coming up constantly. I mean, she's all over the Chinese press. She's all over the Weibo. She's everywhere. I mean, she hasn't done anything in, in several years. But the linking of Guo with with the Red Cross Society of China and the incredible uh, decline in the number of contributions to the Red Cross Society of China as compared to um, any of the other grassroots charities and a grassroots foundation like Jet Li's foundation. It's just, I mean, it's just incomparable. So the Red Cross Society of China, which was so respected prior to 2011, is not respected anymore. And so clearly the government has an interest in building up this grassroots sector and encouraging them to go into legal status because so many of them are unregistered right now. And then finally, I would say that there's a big interest, a big interest in getting them on the books. Um, I think it's frustrating to the Ministry of Civil Affairs that they're not on the books, that they're registered with the um, Commercial and Industrial Bureau, or they're just simply not registered. And in fact, Lili Guo, who's the, who's the um, Minister of Civil Affairs, says, well, you know, they're all out there and they're doing all these wonderful things, but how can we possibly um, deal with this situation because they're not in our system? And so we don't have any real way to control them. So, so I think those are the three main reasons why this is such an important development from the government's standpoint. And I'll end it there, because um, I know Jan has some questions and well, comments. And well,
1: before you and you said there were four types of NGOs that are going to register directly. But you oh, I'm sorry,
2: the the, the, science. Science, the scientific research uh, organizations. Right. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I did forget to mention that. Okay. And there are two types that they have said. Well, uh, uh, let me put it differently. There are four types that they have said may not directly register. One is foreign, so that means they will have a separate regime for foreign. That's mm-hmm. clear. That's pretty obvious. Then, with respect to domestic NGOs, religious, now there's a reason for that. Religious NGOs are, are regulated by a completely separate agency, by the State Administration of Religious Affairs. Sarah. Um, legal, well that's also rec- represented, excuse me, regulated by a separate agency the uh, Ministry of Justice and the Ministry of Justice has done nothing about public interest law firms They have regulated commercial law firms, but not public interest law firms. So they need to, yeah, I mean, so they need to do something there. And then finally, there's political. Um, Some people, you know, you you can read that as being a sort of nefarious thing. Well, we're going to call you political so we won't register you. But there's also a reason for it. Um, So, I mean, I think it has these two prongs. The reason is that the political organizations in China are regulated, The eight um, democratic parties are regulated by the United Front Department. And since they're regulated by the United Front Department, that's where the political organizations are supposed to go. And so if it's that, they can say, well, you go there. And if the United Front Department will take you on, which of course they won't, then that would be your place to get registered. But I think the Ministry of Civil Affairs, which is small and weak and, you know, has very few personnel and very few human res- I mean very very few financial resources just wants to say, you people do those things. So, okay.
1: And just curious, when you say the pub it seems counterintuitive that they're regulating regular law firms but not public interest law firms, which you think would provide much more angst for them, so why have they
2: well, got- I think that i I think that they don't know how to define a public interest law firm. there has been and and this gets you know this really gets into the weeds, but there has been a considerable pushback on the whole question of whether or not organizations that are not related to, so this occurs in the area of environmental litigation as well, organizations that do not have an interest in the stakes and the outcomes of the of the litigation can represent people who want to do the litigation. And it's it's just between a rock and a hard place. And so there are many of these uh, because the civil procedure law has these provisions in it and and there's just been some pushback, particularly by environmental groups, saying we ought to be able to represent these these interests. But it's a it's a tough topic, um, and you should actually get Rachel Stern to come and talk about her book on environmental litigation because she would do a bang up job as well. So, okay. um, But I you know I mean it's it's fraught, and there is a lot of public interest litigation. It's just that it's done by Unregistered groups.
1: Okay, um, just before we get into the substance of, of this discussion, and um, want all of you to be able to ask whatever questions you have, I just have one minor comment that really struck me in reading this book. You, you said before in your introduction that you have a wonderful editor, uh, and I don't know if uh-huh. if you deserve the credit or if it's the editor that deserves the credit, just for the the look of the book, and I'm not, not talking about the outside, which I do love the blue and the, this it's beautiful calligraphy, um, but the inside, usually you open up a non-fiction book or a legal book and it's just dense and the fonts are squished together and you think, oh, when you close it two seconds after opening it because I couldn't possibly read that. But this book, you open it and it's, it's light, it's easy on the eyes, especially my mm-hmm. aging eyes. The footnotes you can read extraordinarily well. Well, thank
2: you. Wow! (laughs) The
1: footnotes. I really love the footnotes. These are first of all, they're really footnotes. They're at the foot of the page. They're not, you know, five miles back, and you have to just keep your place here while you're searching for the footnote that matches this page. And and on top of it, they're also, (coughs) it's not a boring list of opposites and ibids and just names of people who wrote books. You actually put a lot of meat into this; these footnotes, and they're really sort of fun to read because, as you can see, Carla has a very chatty persona and style about her, um, and your footnotes are really some little gossipy and some <laughs> little. Chatty. Some are a little gossipy. Um, so I thought that was great. I really liked. Well, that well, part some
2: of it. some are actually pretty funny, and and I was I was praying that the copy editor would not not take them away because. There, there's one place, I don't know whether you caught this one, where I say that the editor, I mean that the translator of a book that was written in Chinese, translated into English, it was a terrible translation, and I said that person should be sent to go into the closet and lock himself in and stay there forever. And they left that in. So, <laughs> no, I, no, OUP is actually, they, they outsource. I was, uh, it's incredible. They outsource, not the editing. I mean, the editing was done by us and my students. Um, you no, know, the the um, the actual copy edits and the page proofs were done by them, and they outsourced those to a group in India, and they were delightful to work with. They were really sweet ladies. So,
3: yeah,
1: well, they did a good job. Um, well, I'd like to actually open it up before I ask my to open it up to all of you, because I know. We got a lot of lawyers in the room, a lot of people interested in civil society issues. So we'll go around the room. Please give us your name and your affiliation, and we'll just start, Marty, with you.
0: Martin Richland,
4: Columbia University. Um, I was wondering, since you mentioned free, um, modern, so-called civil society, how would you characterize as an organizations that eventually came to overthrow dynasties? Would you say
5: these for civil society groups that? Ended up overthrowing dynasties, and the dynasties became so corrupt, or that they wouldn't have necessarily followed this kind of pattern if these dynasties had maintained more of a reasonable um, power relationship and uh, exchange with society.
2: Well, I do define them as civil society organizations. I mean, I, 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 I cast them that very broadly, and and I, you know, I realize that that the Chinese state throughout history has been very um, has been very unkind to many organizations and and the book does in fact recognize that in fact the introduction talks about Gung and, if you know Gung and, and what happened there and, and there are other, um, Wananhai was supposed to be here but he isn't here I mentioned, you know, I mentioned various activists who've been really um, terribly affected by by public security But there's, to me, there's a difference right now between the Ministry of Civil Affairs and Public Security. But going back in time, I mean, some of those, you know, millenarian religious organizations and stuff like that, are they civil society organizations? In some way, yes, but are, you know, are social movements? I mean, most people who try to define civil society, and there's clearly a debate about it, um, and there's clearly a debate about it in authoritarian countries, Um, they try to cast the net relatively broadly. And so my view is that there's a continuum in China, there's the Women's Federation, and then there are the grassroots NGOs that are unregistered, but even some of them are now registered, so. Um, Yes, no no.
1: Yeah. Um, Well,
5: thank you. Give us your name. I'm John McCann, I'm with Trinity uh, Institute. Curious. We're, our church and uh, and institute are very wealthy thanks to Queen Anne, uh, and I'm sure he knows. Yes. That, um, but in any case, we're very interested in working in China, uh, and he's wondering, you know, is this something impossible or sort of cautiously possible to work with them, the Chinese? We work in Africa. We work in all you know, over Asia. Um,
1: work in what in doing? What kind of I mean, health uh, work?
5: Mostly, or? Um, say rescue work, uh, repairing dams. Um, you know, mostly um,
1: humanitarian. humanitarian
5: work. Uh, not we're not a proselytizing church at all. Right. So we don't go into anywhere. Where we're not wanted, and we really look to see what the people need in their areas. We've been primarily working in small, kind of uh, nimble, kind of uh, units. But I'm trying to, since my grandfather was a missionary, I want to make up for the bad <laughs> things and to see if, if, if churches will be allowed to to work in certain past areas of China.
2: Uh, well, well, first of all, I'm an Episcopalian, so I I know uh, about the fact that the Episcopalians don't proselytize. Um, and secondly, yes, some of the missionaries were Anglicans, so y- you will have to apologize for that. But there are lots of faith-based organizations working in China, and and we could chat afterwards uh, in terms of in terms of what I think you might do. I I think that there's a tremendous tremendous need. Um, not just for humanitarian work itself, but for training. Um, my husband Lee is on the board of Relief International, and we're going to try and propose a a project to RI um, that will do training for for relief work, um, because that's one of the things that you hear a lot about the volunteers that try to you know arrive um, in if there's been a massive disaster, or not being trained. Um, it's, a, it's an area where the Chinese government has just simply fallen down because all of the regulations on volunteers are very much focused on events and they're not focused on, you know, training. And so I think training is tremendously important, but we could certainly chat about that afterwards. There's certainly lots of um, organizations. They tend to be evangelical organizations, but, yeah, no, no reason not to yeah. think about doing it.
1: But surprisingly, those evangelical organizations, sort of counterintuitively, are doing well. Oh, they are. They're yeah, lots of people in China handing out Bibles and um, <laughs> and they keep multiplying instead of yeah. the, the it's, it's interesting. Yeah, and the, neither, the, neither the central level or the provincial or local seem to crack down on
2: them. Well, and, and that's, I mean, I do talk in the book about, about the regulation of religious organizations and I, you know, there's a, there, I've focused on the secular organizations today because this is too big a topic, but I, it's really interesting how they focus so much on domestic religious movements and Falun Gong and, and things like that and they don't particularly care. About the foreign religious organizations coming in, so it's it's it is quite fascinating. Yes.
0: Um, hi, my name is Anika Penn and I was um, a grad student at the School of Advanced International Study um, in China Studies. And between two thousand and in the summer of two thousand nine, I worked in Hunan uh, for an unregistered nonprofit working on um, HIV/AIDS issues. Um, and I wonder, and given, and I haven't done uh, much, so I'm. I'm re- thank you for coming and explaining everything that's happened since two thousand nine. But it seems like in your list of groups, or in the government's list of groups that provide social services, there seems to be um, sort of a, I wouldn't say a gaping hole, but um, in, in the definition of what is considered providing social services and what's considered advocacy. And it, particularly with something like HIV/AIDS in Hunan and Anhui, which is uh, incredibly politically sensitive, how I'm trying to figure out how would that work? Because I had meetings in Hunan with you know the International Republican Institute and folks from not technically from State Department, but who were giving money to some of these unregistered groups, and the police showed up at our meeting. So just to check in. <laughs> right. <laughs> so,
2: when, right. So um, so so to cha to drink yeah. tea. Um, yeah, I I know that and, and it's and it is a terrible problem and and you know, I, I go through the gamut of the you know, closing the organization down, the thuggery beating people up, and then just the cha. But um, and these were all organizations that provided social services, Right in
0: doing so they advocated on behalf of
2: HIV sure. sure. On- sure. On- Well I'm 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 actually quite sorry that one and did not show up because Um, he, um, he called me and said, but it's his, and I said, just come anyway, because I know there will be room in the, in the, in the room for you, but, um, yeah, I, I think that it's, I think it's really amazing how much advocacy they can do. I mean, I know a lot of different business registered NGOs, that's, and that's the group that I refer to that are, you know, are registered with the Industrial and Commercial Bureau. Um, there, there are several of them that are extremely good at this and who not only advocate, but they engage in public interest litigation, um, and, and has organization has done a lot of lobbying with, at the National People's <coughs> Congress. It, it depends, I mean, you really have to have guanxi, you really have to use contacts. And I know of a tiny little organization based in Shanghai, which eventually got registered. Just by working very, very hard at it, and its job is really HIV/AIDS in the specific community of, of young students, well, I mean, you know, students in, in secondary schools and, and tertiary education who are gay. And so it's, it's clearly not just providing education, it's clearly doing advocacy. And it works very closely with the Youth League. Its sponsor is the Youth League. Because the youth League saw that there was a need for this so it if you get protection and and that's you'll be fine but that doesn't mean that you're even when you're registered that you're not going to have to drink tea because I, I mean what everybody says is that they know what you're doing so and this is the security officials this is the Ministry of Civil Affairs the Ministry of Civil Affairs doesn't care but they, they will arrive on your doorstep and they already know what you're doing, and they'll say, Well, you know, really, you ought to be careful. Um, we want you to drink tea with us, and they sit there and drink tea, and you ought to be careful. But, And it is a lot in the HIV/AIDS area, but also in other areas.
3: Ko Young. Um, Ko Young Tung at uh, Yale Law School. Um, well, first of all, I'm looking forward to reading this very, very much, and I commend you for a fine, fine work. Thank you. Uh, Lots of hours going on into a very important subject. And since civil society probably plays a very, very important role in a country where there is so much authoritarianism and central control. So the the comments and questions are the following. Um, One is the (coughs) observation that at the world bank we we had a template for NGO law that we wanted to be adopted at different countries and uh, we found that that many countries while welcoming civil society, they want them to be aligned with the state 's interests and anything that would somehow be misaligned would be they would be hostile to so the, the question now um, In China, and I tend to be quite cynical when it comes to China, and is that uh, to the extent that civil society is misaligned with the state's interests, you know, what's the leeway? And one of the tests on this one, I think, is the following: in the U.S., you don't you don't have to register with an NGO office. You know, the main thing that you do in the United States is you register in the state for, you know. Uh, not for profit mm-hmm. uh, corporation or something like that, and then the, the main thing is getting your five hundred one C three certification from the Internal Revenue Service because that is the main thing that's the tax exemption. Sure. Many places do not give tax exemption, and I, the question uh, specifically in China is, do they give tax exemption, which is a way of incentivizing people to not only form but also fund these activities, and. These registrations with different ministries, because you had, at the very very end you had said <coughs> that the ministry of civil affairs uh, were eager to get them registered. So because there is no way of controlling them is the term you used, and it, that was exactly why I fear because Instead of trying to foster these things, at the hundred flowers bloom, so to speak. But it's a way of saying we want to know that you exist, and we're going to control you, and not fostering this tax exemption and other ways of doing it. So uh, I want you to.
2: Well, I I um, with respect to tax exemption, yes, the there is tax exemption for income, Um, and that of course is one of the reasons why the donors and then there's there's the charitable contribution deduction, and in fact the charitable contribution deduction in China is i mean there are, there are better ones in in asia singapore and japan both have better um, tax um, the charitable contribution regimes but so there is exemption and there is deductible donation um, and those are both very good policies china's got a you know compared to the us a very good system it's it's 30% for individuals and 10% for for um, excuse me, 12% for, for corporations, which compares very, very favorably with the US. Um, so it's there. And that's of course why you have 2,000 at least um, foundations, because the foundations exist because people took advantage <coughs> of the tax system. Um, of course, you have other people who wouldn't because they didn't want to disclose their black income, their illegal income, um, and that, that's a problem. But, um, but one of the, the serious problems, as far as I see it, is that ordinary people, there's no system for ordinary people. Like, we, we have United Way, you know. Ordinary people can't get you know, benefits from making donations, and that's a problem. And people do make donations. I mean, for heaven's sakes, the people who contributed to um, the one foundation, which is Jet Li's foundation, extraordinary number of people, an extraordinary amount of money for uh, the Ya'an earthquake. With respect to control, I take, as uh, Young and I go back a long way for, to O. Oh, and Admirers when he was a partner there and I was uh, of counsel there, um, but, you know, I take a different perspective on this. I'm a lawyer who's worked in the not-for-profit field. I know there are lots of scandals. And the Ministry of Civil Affairs is the one regulatory body that has the power to require them to file reports. As yet, there is no self-regulatory system. Now, one of the adjuncts to direct registration that is being discussed, and I would be so delighted if this were to occur, is because, as I said, the the Ministry of Civil Affairs is under-resourced, both from a human standpoint and from a financial standpoint. Well, how can they check all those reports? It's just ridiculous to imagine that they can. But if there is a good self-regulatory body, and if that self-regulatory body, like the ones we have in the U.S., is not part of the state, I mean, for those of you who may not be familiar with this, but we have the um, independent sector, which is the big... (coughs) Uh, umbrella organization in the U.S. and has a lot of power over its members and then we have state level organizations. If that were to exist in China, then it would be tremendously helpful in ensuring that the organizations do file their reports and, and do provide transparency for their donors because without something. Because And the, I have to say, the state administration of taxation has kind of lost its way here. Um, so those the tax people don't know how to do it. And <coughs> I, I personally think that there's a big, big gap here. And that somebody has to do something, at least in the interim, and that's going to have to be the government until they get this association set up. But they are talking about it. I mean, that was another thing that came out of the... Um, of the National People's Congress meeting in March was that this was going to be a new development.
1: These kinds of national, self-regulatory, this new national
2: association, yeah, and it, and it's, that just sort of blew me away because every time that there's been a conversation about it, it's always been, government has to do it. That's
1: actually one of the places we took these early groups, the 1990 group, the 1995, we took them to the National Charities, yeah, yeah, whatever, Bureau right. here in New York yeah, and other places, right. and they were fascinated yeah. by that. Yeah. They didn't quite understand how it worked, but they were fascinated by it. Frank.
6: Yeah, Frank Kale, uh US-China Exchanges. Uh, this summer I'll be working with two Hong Kong NGOs who have for a number of years worked on education in China, and we will be doing uh, English is a second language in uh, Changsha in in Guizhou. I've also uh, guided State Department guests here in New York who are representatives of NGOs doing environmental work and uh, tenant uh, rights work and other kinds of uh, NGO kinds of things. And we have heard In the National Committee and at the the Lingnan uh, luncheons at China Institute from people who uh, work with NGOs Um, one as recently as a year ago the other two or three three maybe three years ago (coughs) and what each of them has said one of those from the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation is that when it comes to NGOs being in touch with other NGOs, it's a no-go and a no-no and um, it's an edge, a line that can't be crossed. Um, The other person who worked with NGOs for a number of years in in China uh, worked on a publication where NGOs shared their their, their news and their hiring needs, and all kinds of things that are sort of quite straightforward. That too was cracked down on.
2: China Development Brief? Yes. Yeah, uh, yes. I think that's what yeah. it was. Yeah, that's it was. what it was. It's, it's actually going again. Okay, well, so. In
1: a different form. That, yeah. That in Ch- was, only Chinese. No, no. I'll no, well, come oh, back
6: to that. No? One. That was Sorry. my understanding as of the recent past. Yeah, so is it. But
5: that's true
6: that you can't cross that line because then you become too much like a party. Right. Yeah. So my question is where is that now and what does the immediate future look like?
2: Well that's why, one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons why I was so shocked when they said we're going to set up an association because I was like, are you kidding? Because that has always been a problem. I mean it's been a problem as long as I've been working there the NGO-to-NGO NGO contact, uh, except informally. Um, and, and so I was surprised. Now, they, I think they become a little bit more comfortable with that because of the, the China Foundation Center, which is not an association of foundations, except that it really is. I mean, they don't call it that, but they call it a center for foundation support. On the other hand, they have constant meetings. I mean, they have a meeting at least once every year to bring foundations, both the public fundraising foundations and the private foundations, together.
1: Can you just, a an interview, but maybe a clarification for people, because it's very confusing. We use the word foundation to mean one thing. Correct. And in China, it's something a little different. Well, it's, it's, not,
2: it's, it's not entirely different. <coughs> we, we use the foundation to mean private foundations and those exist in China. So those are set up by an individual with his or her wealth, mainly his wealth. Then there are corporate foundations, Um, and those are set up by companies. Those exist in China also. So those are the so-called non- public fundraising foundations. Then there are the public fundraising foundations, which are sort of old-school. Think back to the Foundation for the Underdeveloped Regions, all of those old ones back in the 80s and 90s. Those continue to exist. Um, The China Foundation for Poverty Alleviation, and the Federations. These are big foundations that raise money from the public and then distribute it to the public. Those are the public fundraising foundations. And I I don't, again, want to get into the weeds, but. But there are now some public fundraising foundations that are set up by private people like Jet Li. His is registered in Shenzhen. So the fact that they're getting these people together using these platforms (coughs) is a fascinating development. It's occurred within the past um, three years. Um, and, And it's grown more and more within the past three years. I suspect, although I haven't been back to China, so I haven't been able to ask the question. But I suspect that that underlies feeling a little bit better about having an association. So I that may well be the case. With respect to China Development Brief, there are two iterations of it now. There is the Chinese iteration of it, which does involve precisely the thing you were talking about, Frank, which is you know just information. And then there's the China Development Brief English, which Sean shared, yeah. um, which he's yeah. one of the people who's written Jacket Blur <coughs> for me. Um, Sean is doing that, and they hold for all the time. I mean, they just had one in Beijing at the end of March. So there's much more openness, um, and I and I just see far more, there's no association of associations yet, but, I think that there's a certain amount of power to the notion that we need one and we'll see how that develops but but I was surprised because they've always been very and this harks back to you know the dynastic era that <laughs> they didn't like them but they didn't like them then and they certainly didn't like them up until fairly recently.
7: Hi, Blaise Andole, Longbridge Capital. On the economic sphere, there's uh, a dichotomy of sorts between the state-owned sector and the private sector, generally, whatever that mean. China-specific is, um, and part of the dich- dichotomy is characterized by a fairly un- uneven playing field between the two sides. Um, over the past decade, uh, it shifted back in favor of the state-owned sector, and there is a possibility there might be some shifting back in favor of the private sector under the current regime. Very debatable. Um, but in any case, which way is the sort of balance of? It, it seems like from your answering the questions that the balance you're of the opinion that the balance of power, so to speak, between civil society and government, is shifting in favor of the ability of civil society organizations to do things, whatever, whether it's uh, corruption or, or not. But in, in, there's a certain degree of, of, of uh, dare I say, uh, liberalization in that regard. It is Am I hearing that correctly? And where do you see that trend going broader? I, I apologize, I haven't read the book yet, so I
2: don't it's okay. know what you say. You just got it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for buying. <laughs> yeah,
7: no, no, my pleasure. And, and obviously, you know, for my own particular events, I, I look at China long term from an sure. economic standpoint, so sure. that's kind of the gist of it. But in any way you feel
2: comfortable answer? well. Well I of course. You know, it's reading tea leaves and 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 I think that what's happening with the new um, administration, new party leadership is is it's early days yet. But it's truly Um, breathtaking what's occurred between 2011 and now, at least to me. Um, I called 2011 the remarkable year in my book Um, and then I, because Oxford was slow I had to update a little bit for some 2012 developments, but basically it ends at the end of 2011 with a few updates. And of course there's now 2013 and there are going to be developments by the end of 2013. And I have, I'm negotiating with them about doing a second edition sooner rather than later because they normally stretch these things out, but if they do bring the new regulations out, I would hope that I could you know, go into China and talk to people and, and investigate what has happened um, since the new regulations um, are, will, be, will have been promulgated. Now there's always bureaucratic delay. Um, there have been lots of complaints about what's going on in Beijing at the local level with the red- direct registration. It's, it's always delay, And because bureaucrats are bureaucrats. You experience that in the economic sphere. Um, um, and they just resist change. And so I think that's what's going on in Beijing. I know that will happen. It, it's, Beijing is not Guangdong, so let's just make it clear. Um, but I do see it trending in a good way, and what I've said in the book, and, and I will say it here pr- publicly, unless there's something like Tiananmen or Falun Gong, both of which were <coughs> real setbacks for the sector, real setbacks. Falun Gong, extremely so, even for sec- secular NGOs. Um, I think that it will trend in, that, in the reform direction.
1: We've reached the witching hour, but I know there's one person who had their hand up. Was it a Judge? Uh, yes. Thank you. I'm please? Clifford
5: Wallace, U.S. You know, Court of Appeals. Um, I'm fascinated by your idea that more registration is going to le- learn, lean towards loosening things up in China and providing an outsourced charge. But traditionally in China, the registration hasn't done that. Is there something new? For example, lawyers are registered not by Bar Association but by the Ministry of Justice. I've talked to the people who actually do that, and their, their way they, the way they see their job is controlled. Now, what is there about this type of registration that you feel is going to lead to a loosening it up and, and actually a decentralization of power out of government to do certain things?
2: Well, first of all, if you're not registered, you may not avail yourself of tax benefits. Secondly, if you're not registered, you may not receive government contracts. Mm -hmm. And so, those are log jams that stand in the way of the unregistered NGOs. Uh, There's no practical way around it. You know, in in the United States, for all practical purposes, you have to be, now registration there is, you know, is easy, as as Young said. I mean, you have to be incorporated, big deal. And what they're trying to do is, making, is make this registration not a big deal in China, so that, so that you can then engage in government contracts and you can receive uh, donations, you can receive tax exemption. In the United States, for all practical purposes, you have to be incorporated. You, you know, there's nothing that says you have to be, but no government entity is gonna give you a contract um, because you can't open a bank account in the United States. You can freely associate, but an unregistered, unincorporated um, organization cannot open a bank account. And so this, this gives access. I understand your point, Judge, but I, but, I, but I also see all of the blockages to these organizations if they do not become legalized. And I've certainly worked closely enough with the Ministry of Civil Affairs. Ministry of Civil Affairs wants them to be able to have the freedom to do these things, to contract, to have tax exemption, I, I hope things you're like
5: right, that. Yes.
2: But you have to recognize the, the Ministry of Civil Affairs, as I've said a couple of times, is very small and very weak. Public security is much stronger. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm I'm basing my prognosis on People I know at the ministry and what the ministry wants to do. As you know, it could be another Tiananmen, it could be another Falun Gong, it could be something else. And then it goes. Mm -hmm.
4: Can I add something to what you're saying, Carl? As long as it's brief. It has to be brief. It has to be brief. Uh, One of the huge benefits of allowing direct registration is that you will no longer have to have a state sponsoring entity. And traditionally, the state-sponsoring entity, usually a department of the government, uh, exercises control. And that's its job. And many uh, organizations cannot register because they can't find a a sponsoring entity. And many who do find a sponsoring entity find their activities uh, supervised and controlled by that entity, not by the Ministry of Civil Affairs, so if in the future there could be direct registration without a supervising agency and, reg- and control only by the Ministry of Civil Affairs, which is we, there will be much more op- room to operate. And many more NGOs will be registered.
1: Thank you, husband. OK, thank you both, very, both of you very much. It was fascinating.